We're supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock just like you do. Open your free checking account today at panaceafinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonabank, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back. This, hey, Matt. How you doing? This is the Curbsiders. That's the great Dr. Stuart Brigham interrupting me, as usual. Uh, doc, the great Dr. Paul Williams is also here. Tonight, we are talking about chronic cough with Dr. Brad Hayward. And before we get to that, I wanted to remind you that this and most other episodes are available for free CME and mock credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education you can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org and set up a free account. So with that, Paul, would you tell the audience, what do we do on this show? I'm happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And as you mentioned tonight, we talked to close personal friend, deep mentor from our residency training, uh, the great Dr. Brad Hayward. And I'm going to let Cyrus tell us all about the episode and about our special guest. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Paul. So tonight we were thrilled to record an episode on cough with our guest, Dr. Brad Hayward. Dr. Hayward is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. He serves as an APD for the PCCM Fellowship Training Program. And additionally, he has pursued fellowship in palliative medicine, holding a dual appointment in the Division of Palliative Medicine. His goals are to combine and further the fields of pulmonary and critical care and palliative medicine. And in this episode, he teaches us about the common causes for subacute and chronic cough, how to diagnose the cause for cough in these patients, and how to approach therapy. So without further ado, let's get it on. Excellent. Hey, hey, Paul. So did you know there's actually a new term for the arts in this COVID era following postmodernism? It's called Kafkaesque. <laughs> You, I mean, you didn't even give me a chance to respond. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, you already got a pun in. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kafka-esque. All right. Fade to black. Brad, thank you for joining us. We've been talking about doing some pulmonary topic with you for a long time now. I'm glad for the audience to meet you. So tell them a one-liner about yourself and give them a hobby or interest outside of medicine. Sure. So... I'm a 39-year-old uh, pulmonologist, intensivist, and palliative care doctor uh, who's dedicated to teaching practical aspects of my fields. Uh, my social history is notable for curating an Instagram uh, for my dog, Arnie, watching trashy reality TV shows, and sometimes running marathons, but often claiming that I hate it. What, what, what kind of trashy reality TV shows? I, I've got to ask. <laughs> well, uh... I mean, there, as you know, there's many, but uh, 90 Day Fiance is uh, currently on loop, and uh, uh, there's that, Below Deck Med. I mean, the the options are endless. So, so yeah, normally, and I'm still going to ask about a book, even though in the interest of full disclosure, I may not get to it um, <laughs> until, until 2024. 
um, if, if the world survives. But in the short term, I, I would like to hear more about Below Deck Med. Now I am fascinated. So what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's apparently this whole world of like uh, super rich yachters. And um, they this it's like set in the Mediterranean. That's the med part. And then it's about the cast that is Below Deck that takes care of all these super rich people. Um, they're, they're called like yachties. They come from all over the world, I guess, to work on these super yachts. And there's always, of course, like a lot of drama below deck. So that's, uh, pretty much the premise of it. I, that's much better than when I thought it was actually medic related. I'm actually much more interested now than I was previously. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, no, no, it's strictly superficial and trashy. Oh, perfect. For the audience, Paul does not like any medicine in his downtime. He's, it's pure <laughs> escapism. That's good. Correct, yeah. Paul. Yeah, that's uh similar. <laughs> yeah, no, even in even in my professional life, I really try to minimize medicine as much as possible. <laughs> so um were I, we gonna get a book so, then too? Or? Yep. Yeah, favorite book? My favorite book. Um Actually, I, mean, I, think, I think, think we normally frame it as a book that doctors should read. So either one is a valid a valid option. Yeah. I mean the book that I think that all doctors should read is one called uh, Mastering Communication with Seriously Ill Patients. Uh, by Anthony Back and Bob Arnold. And it's essentially like a roadmap um, and an outline of the approach to having palliative care type discussions with patients. And it also provides you a way and a framework of addressing patients' emotions, which I think is really challenging for everybody. And it can work outside in terms of addressing like friends' emotions or other people. So I think it's a pretty good book and I would recommend it. Yeah. So what's the best advice you ever received as a learner or as a teacher? Um, I think the best advice that I've had as a learner um, in terms of working with patients is that we have uh, two ears and one mouth and to use them in that proportion. Uh, So it's hard to listen sometimes to patients when we have a short period of time or you want to start asking questions like about cough or other things. But I found myself... um, if I deliberately don't say anything for a period of time, it actually is more efficient in the end. And they sort of tell you their story. So I try to keep that proportion in mind. So I think that's probably the best advice I've had. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow money more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, physicians and physicians in training can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. It has an interest rate that is less than half the average credit card, no cosigner requirement, and a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, Try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Go to PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn more. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonobank and member FDIC. Paul, could you start us off with a case from Cashlack Memorial? Sure. Um, happy to. We went all out with a name on this one. So I'm going to tell you about uh, Ms. Esmeralda Weezy. She is a 33-year-old female. She's presenting to her primary care provider at Cash Act Memorial for a cough. She states that six weeks ago, she had a week of intermittently productive cough. She felt easy fatigability. She felt congested. She had some sinus pain along with some chest pain with deep breaths. 
She went to an urgent care and was diagnosed with bronchitis. And after about 10 days or so, she felt more or less back to her baseline, with the exception of a cough that has persisted. So she's coming to us now, um, hoping for some kind of relief and also an explanation as to why she still has a cough. But before, before we save uh, Ms. Wheezy, I think it's probably always helpful to define our terms. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't define for us, especially in terms of the timing, um, cough and sort of how we should how we should conceptualize it. Sure. So acute cough uh, is cough less than three weeks. Uh, typically, that cough is um, like a viral respiratory infection. Um, so that uh, that's that's usually the only cause of acute cough. And so we typically don't go much further in our investigation of the cause if that's the timing. Um, subacute cough is three to eight weeks and chronic cough is greater than eight weeks. And that's where there's the large differential diagnosis. But for acute cough of less than three weeks, it's usually a respiratory infection and we don't do much about it. I think that's, Brad, I think that's one of the hardest things when you see patients when they're in the midst of it, like that first three weeks or even that first eight weeks where they're really like worried about this cough as the thing that's persisting. And probably since you're getting referrals, you probably don't see the patients in that period as much. But usually one thing that I try to tell people when they're in the midst of like a cough or cold is probably the cough will be the last thing to go away. It should go away by the eight week point. I'm not sure if you have a way that you approach that. Yeah, I mean, we don't always see them in that acute period, but I um, try to set the expectations with the patients ahead of time is that, you know, this is going to be a process that's, um, you know, it's irritating and it's annoying to not be able to get rid of this cough, but eventually um, we may find a cure for it and it may just get better on its own. But just setting the expectation that it's not something that we're going to be able to fix overnight, even if we do figure out what the etiology is. Um, So it kind of manages their expectations ahead of time. Brad, we always like to really dig in deep to ask uh, what what part of the history do you really key in on when you're when you're seeing a patient like this? Because I think that's in primary care. Certainly, that's within our wheelhouse. So, what is important about cough? I mean, patients. Uh, we were talking to a doctor, uh, an otolaryngologist, about sinusitis, and she was telling us that patients bring in like tissues filled with snot to to her office, and. I imagine similar things may happen with chronic cough, like people bringing in like a, a fresh uh, loogie, if you will, for you to in- inspect. Is that helpful? And and if if it is or if it isn't, like what is helpful when when people when you're asking people about cough and you're evaluating it? Yeah, I mean it's not helpful when they bring in the uh, tissues filled with sputum, you know, in a big <laughs> garbage bag that they've been collecting. So it's not helpful. But uh, you're my, saying uh, that's happened to you. <laughs> Uh, many times, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I mean, even though you know I'm I'm comfortable with sputum, it's really not uh, that welcome. Um, but in terms of uh, history, um, some of the things that are important, especially because if the patient is coming to me as a specialist, they probably have been thinking about this for a while. So some of it is just letting them go and say, just tell me about your cough because they've already started investigating like, oh, I notice it happens when I eat gluten or, you know, when I am around my grandchildren or something like that. So really just letting them tell you and say that there's not really anything, you know, that would be weird or out of bounds um, just so that they'll be able to freely share. But um, things that are really important are, you know, have you had this cough before? Um, Have you had any recent respiratory infections or illnesses? So did you feel like you had a cough or cold or anything recently? Um, 
is the cough productive or not? And um, the reason that that can be helpful is if it's a productive cough, then we think of things like bronchiectasis or sinus disease. Um, and if it's non-productive, then you know, could it be related to medications or intrinsic lung disease itself? Um, asking patients about a history of asthma is important. And um, one of the things that I usually do with that is that when they say they have a history of asthma, asking them, how did you get that diagnosis? Like, did you do pulmonary function tests, like breathe in and out of a tube? Because it seems like everybody at some point in their life gets a diagnosis of asthma without actually having asthma. So I always am very skeptical about um, that diagnosis. So asking them about, you know, do they actually have asthma? For example, do they have like atopic symptoms? Do they respond to bronchodilators? Uh, you know, have they been on inhaled steroids before? Have they been hospitalized? Have, do they visit the ER often um, for episodes of bronchitis? Like those things might be consistent with asthma, but just having a history on your chart doesn't necessarily mean that it's the truth. Asking about seasonal allergies. So, you know, do you get itchy eyes? Do you have itchy skin, uh, other things, you know, around the change of the seasons, like either in the spring or the fall. I do ask about reflux symptoms. So, you know, do you ever notice when you lay down at night that you have heartburn? Um, do you have like a bad or sour taste in your mouth? And then asking them when they notice this happening, not necessarily just reflux, but in general, the cough. So do they notice it more in the morning? Do they notice it more at night? Do they notice it more when they're in their workplace or when they're in their apartment? Did they notice it when they moved their environment? Because at least in New York, people move apartments pretty frequently. So sometimes it can be associated with the change in their environment in that sense. So that's some of the questions. And then, of course, additional questions would be looking at their medication history. So are they on an ACE inhibitor or not? Um, because that can be a frequent cause of cough. And Only you're so lucky that that's why they're coming to you. <laughs> yeah, it's happened maybe once, and I felt very, uh, <laughs> I felt very good about that uh, of picking that up. But most of the time, I think the referrals, at least, I think most primary care doctors are pretty quick to yeah. take them off of the ACE. So it's like that, uh, or if they're still smoking, you're like, all right, please, please go away, come back when you're not smoking, and and then we'll we'll talk. Yeah, yeah, and I guess we'll get more into it. I wanted to ask about the GERD as a cause, I feel like I almost try to will my patients into admitting they have reflux because then I can <laughs> give them something like it. Like, have you, do you have heartburn symptoms? No. Like, but I mean, you've had heartburn at one point in your life, right? And they're like, yeah, I do. Like, great. Right, then two weeks of PPI, let's see how we do. And but I, kinda, I feel like, is that. <laughs> that kind of begs how, the question of nerd is a thing too. The non-erosive reflux <laughs> disease. Great, great stuff. Um, yeah. But how, how high yield, how high yield is, is, is the GERD, or at least we're trying to gun down GERD. Like we, we think about silent reflux sometimes. I know we'll get to management, but is there any even utility in just trying the, the PPI approach or is that sort of frowned upon in pulmonary circles? No, I mean, it's very, uh, I don't know if I'd say encouraged, but um, they don't necessarily have to have a um, symptom of, you know, acid reflux or even, you know, if we suspect silent reflux, because I'm not sure if we're talking about it during this part or not, but one of the etiologies is not necessarily that the acid is coming up in their throat and going down into their trachea. It's that there's like crosstalk between the, ner the nerves and the esophagus and the trachea. So they could be getting irritated in the esophagus from acid, but it's um, generating as a cough. Um, so they're coughing from that sense. So we do a trial of PPI, whether they say they have acid reflux or not, you know, if it's on the differential. 
What I find crazy about the whole PPI thing and also kind of depressing is that when you read about it, they have to be on it for like two months, maybe three months, like a good trial. And it might take a very long time for it to go away. Uh, so it's, it's it's hard to probably hard to get patient buy in there. And then even if that is the cause, the cough might not get, even if they do have reflux, the cough might not get better. So it's just, it's, it's, it seems like a real pain <laughs> to figure well, that on the contrary, out. Yeah. I mean, on the contrary, it might get better, not because of the PPI and you can yeah. at least take credit for that. So that it just I got better that. anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, and they think I'm, you know, the genius who picked it up, but right. it just got better. It's just the tincture of time and maybe a PPI. So, okay. So, so you, it sounds like you take a pretty thorough history. You try, you, you're, you, you were giving us a big differential there, like seasonal allergies, uh, we talked about GERD. We talked. You took a pretty thorough history about asthma, and uh, and then also you're asking like, are they on an ACE inhibitor? I mentioned the smoking thing. So those that that's kind of the high yield area to start. This patient, this specific patient, Esmeralda, Miss Wheezy, she had a about six weeks ago. She had a, what maybe a viral infection. So how do you counsel this type of patient if they happen to make it to you in that six week time? Um, I, I think we just explained similar to what you said you explained to your patients is that the cough might be the last thing to go. So you may feel better from, you know, the malaise or fever that you had, but the cough usually can linger for over eight weeks after a viral infection. So this would be like a, a post-viral cough syndrome. And that can come either from rhinitis, which is upper airway cough syndrome where there's you know post-nasal drip and dripping down the back of your throat, or it could just be that the airways become more uh, sensitive and so more easily triggered during that time. And so afterwards, they may cough like when they go out in the cold or when they're exposed to uh, someone's strong perfume or other things like that. So I think in counseling them, it's just, uh, it's going to take time for it to get better. And that it's really, you know, just explaining what I did, that it's related to the virus and it's probably the last thing to go. So what sort of therapy, if any, should we offer a patient like this? If we think it's a post-viral cough, like the, the time course meets up and they're at the six to eight week mark, or, or let's say they're at the eight week mark and they're like, what can, what can I do? We did a recent, uh, I'm not sure if you follow our, our hotcake series, but uh, we recently talked about this meta-analysis where they looked at honey and uh, certainly lots of limitations there. And I'm not I'm not sure I fully believe it. Maybe there's something there or it's just just uh, from what I was reading for this cough episode, it seems like anything that can potentially like soothe the throat and let it cool off seems like maybe that's that's how it works. But what's your approach and what do you tell people? Um, I mean, I don't have a, uh, a feeling about uh, honey in particular, but I think um, for most of the patients, I ask them, you know, this will probably get better with time, but how disabling is this to you? Like, are you coughing at work all the time that this is, you know, so bothersome to you? Or um, are you willing to try medications? Because some people, surprisingly, even though they come to us, they just want an explanation, but don't want medications. But for the most part, when they come to us, I'm assuming that they want some sort of treatment. And so I usually will ask them about whether they're having postnasal drip or sinus congestion or not. And if they are, then I would give them an intranasal steroid. And then I also would give them an inhaled steroid to help with reducing that inflammation in their lungs and that hypersensitivity for about four to six weeks. But the variable there is the intranasal steroid or not. Now, that doesn't matter what their flow loop show 
with or without obstruction, you would just give it to them regardless for about four weeks? Yeah, because I mean, it could be the, the cause could be obstructive lung disease, you know, which would be asthma, um, or it could be an eosinophilic um, disease, which doesn't necessarily have to have obstruction, and the treatment would be the same, which is an inhaled steroid. And we're and again, we think this is a post-viral, right? So, are we saying that that induced like a reactive? We're saying that induced a reactive airway is not necessarily this person's going to have chronic asthma from now on. And would they? Would this person even? Because this is like the first six to eight weeks after an illness. Would this person? I, I think Stuart probably wouldn't even have PFTs yet or spirometry yet. Okay. I feel like something I, I see done fairly commonly in, in clinical practice is patients who are diagnosed with a post-viral cough get a, a short-acting beta agonist. They're just given albuterol. Um, I've heard explanations like it helps sort of get the mucosal elevator going or it helps sort of decrease the, the airway responsiveness. Is that something that is actually useful um, from an evidence standpoint? Um, I mean, I think from a clinical evidence standpoint, I think that by the time the patients are coughing and then they use their albuterol, I think that it's not as effective. Um, so that's why I think using an intra, an inhaled corticosteroid is more helpful just for that longer acting effect. Because if they have just a few episodes of coughing a day, by the time they take their albuterol, like the coughing fit is already over. Uh, so I think using it, uh, using the inhaled corticosteroid as like not prophylaxis, but just as a continued treatment. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like if they were saying that they're, they're a runner and they get, they're starting to cough in the cold air, would you like, do you, do you find that helpful to give it before, like before they go for a run in this situation, like the short acting beta agonist? Yeah. I mean, if that's all that they're noticing, or if it's, you know, if it's this, um, this post-viral cough syndrome and they just notice every time they go out into the cold, you know, to walk to the subway or whatever, they cough and it really bothers them. Then I would say, sure, you could use just the albuterol then, but otherwise I think an inhaled corticosteroid would be helpful, uh, for this, you know, period while we're trying to resolve the inflammation. And I just want to ask about the post-viral cough syndrome. Does this also apply to the world's most uh, famous virus, COVID-19? So for the post-COVID-19 <laughs> cough syndrome, is there any evidence or any, any uh, looking at in, um, inhaled corticosteroids for those patients? Um, for those patients, I mean, the ones that I've seen, a lot of times we'll give them just a course of um, oral steroids like prednisone for five to 10 days, um, because usually the involvement that they've had, and I have a select population, right? Because I only see people who maybe have come out of the ICU. And so if they're coughing, then I would give it, um, give them oral steroids for, you know, five to 10 days. But if it, you know, if it's somebody that you suspect had COVID and they still have post-viral cough, I think an inhaled steroid is reasonable. Okay. All right. So, so for Miss, Miss Wheezy, uh, she sees, we, we send her to you for her post, post viral cough. She gets inhaled corticosteroids and she also gets uh, a nasal steroid. And what do you know, within the next month, she's, she's better. But, uh, I think we have a continuation of the case or a new case here. So Stuart, did you want to read this one? Sure. So next case is Mr. Winston Wheezy. So Father Esmeralda, he's a 58-year-old male who you see a few weeks later also complaining of cough, not unlike his daughter. However, unlike his daughter, he cannot think of any causative factor for his cough. Just saying that his wife has been bringing up his coughing for the last several months, he's finally getting to the doctor's office to discuss it. So for this patient, how would you approach him differently than his daughter? 
Um, I mean, f first, the question would be, you know, what is it about the cough that brought you in? Is it just because your wife, wife. was nagging you or, uh, you know, sometimes people might have a cough and then it has changed in quality in some way. So just trying to figure out what is the reason that brought you in today as opposed to last week? Like, is it getting worse or is there something about it, you know, that's in particular that we should address? But if there's not any, nothing, you know, that comes from that, then I would start thinking about, you know, the top three causes of chronic cough, which is um, post-nasal drip or upper airway cough syndrome, cough variant asthma, asthma or GERD. And so I would start thinking about that in terms of questions that I'm going to ask him about his history. Yeah. And then also make sure that he didn't have any recent infectious symptoms so that this couldn't be a post-viral cough syndrome. Yeah. yeah, he just did a really good job with his daughter, and uh, he wanted to come and see you too. That's really why. <laughs> Brad, I wanted to... I did want to touch on... Oh, yeah, oh, go, sorry. go for it, Paul. I, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, we went over your, your history taking the things that you emphasized in the, in the last case, but I, I did want to actually touch on what environmental exposures you ask about specifically. Like, if, say, if a patient is really volunteering anything, what are the very high-yield things to ask about, especially in chronic cough, that might be good environmental exposures to know? Yeah. So, I mean, one would be asking, um, I mean, I feel like I'm probably failing my uh, pulmonology colleagues by not emphasizing enough some of the social history, but, you know, what um, What does he Just do? Give me a chance for birds here, Brad. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, do you have any birds? Uh, and that's, of course, one of our favorite questions. But other history exposures would be like, what do you do for work? You know, do you, are you a uh, like a sandblaster or something like that? Or, or are you somebody who um, works at a construction site where there could be asbestos or you know, just exposure to dust? Um, and that's some of the environmental history that we might go on. But then also like in your house, do you notice, is there mold in your house? Um, have you seen like in the corners of your shower or bathroom or in your ceiling tiles or something like that, like watermark? How about the last time you changed your filter? <laughs> In the house too. Yeah. And so, you know, do you have air conditioners? Um, you know, we could go on and on about the different um, things that are going on uh, in their house and then, you know, what their work environment is like, what their home environment is like. And, you know, even going on the birds, like, um, you know, do you sleep with pillows that have feathers in them? Do you have down blankets? So it, it can be pretty uh, revealing what people will tell you uh, in the social history. I should point out to the audience if if they want to hear us hate on some birds the the <laughs> i the ILD episode written by Dr. Paul Williams and company was uh pretty, we we really gave it to the birds on that one. <laughs> yeah. They've had it good for too long. <laughs> oh man. I I had a thought. Oh, I know what I I thought Paul this is what I thought you were going to ask about which was the physical exam. And oh, gosh, so sure. we, we really didn't go through the physical exam for the first case because the, the history was, was pretty much like a slam dunk for us there. But um, by the time someone gets to you, Brad, I imagine you have to do like you have to think maybe this could be something other than like the big three, the upper airway cough syndrome, cough, air and asthma or GERD. So like what do you pay attention to on a physical exam that might key you in on something else? Yeah, I mean, one would just be, you know, when they're walking to your you know, from our waiting room to my office, just seeing how they're walking. Like, for example, like, are they short of breath when they're walking? Because they may be just saying that they have a cough, but it could be that they also has have dyspnea and they're just compensating for it, which is a whole different, you know, category. But then on the physical exam, I mean, looking in their nose uh, to see if they have nasal polyps or um, irritation. 
um, looking at the back of their throats for cobblestoning or not, which might help you with postnasal drip. And then, of course, the standard uh, lung exam, you know, listening for wheezing or ronchi or rails. And one of the things that I also will do is have them do a forced exhalation. So tell them like that they're blowing like a birthday candle out. And then sometimes you can pick up wheezing that way, which is sort of like a poor man's spirometry, I suppose. Do you just listen by, um, do, you, do you put your stethoscope over their trachea when you do that or, or listen at their lungs or you just, just listen? Uh... Listen at their lungs. Okay. Yeah. Like various points in their lungs. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And then of course we look for clubbing. Uh, and I think that's most of the relevant physical exam for the cough. And and I just have to bring this up as a, I think this is like a tertiary, like, like a fourth line thing, but I, the looking in the ear for earwax and cerumen impaction as a potential cause of cough is something that I came across. And I was just like, is this a real thing? Like, I have never heard of this. And are you looking in people's ears, like thinking like, oh, there's a ball of wax in there and that's what's causing <laughs> their cough? No, but I think that, uh, I think what you're talking about, I think it's called like Arnold's reflex, I believe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Where <laughs> there's like crosstalk between some of the like, um, nerves in your ears um, with triggering a cough. So I think when you put the otoscope in their ear, um, you can trigger the cough in that way. So I don't think it's necessarily related to wax itself, but. Okay. So what would be, what would be the next step? So we've, you've, we've done our physical exam. We've taken a very thorough history, especially about the environment and uh, any exposures, lifestyle things. So what would be the next the next thing that you do for this patient, let's assume they've had a chest X-ray um, and that was unrevealing. And probably by the time they get to you, do you think in primary care we should probably do chest X-ray spirometry or is there are there any other tests for, for a patient like this? Because I, I think we're going to call this, this guy has no real clear, let's say the history and the exam, we can't really find, pinpoint anything to cause his cough. What would be the right. basic testing that we sh- that we should get? I mean, I think a chest x-ray is helpful, of course, because if there's something abnormal there that could help us um, forming a differential diagnosis, or if it's clear that also helps us, you know, think of things like asthma or just airway disease. And then pulmonary function testing, if you're able to do spirometry, I think is really high yield. I don't think you necessarily have to do a whole pulmonary function test, like including the lung volumes and DLCO because the spirometry itself is helpful just to see if there's obstruction, like is this asthma or COPD? And if it's not, then we might order, you know, more advanced pulmonary function testing. So I don't think that you have to do the whole shebang, but, you know, if you do, you know, we're always happy to look at it. And so those are the things that I think when they come to me that I would look for. And then things that I might do afterwards, I think it depends on, you know, the the history. So I might if I'm thinking that this is something related to allergies or an allergic condition, like in their environment, including mold exposures, um, I might do, you know, a CBC with differential looking for eosinophils. An IgE level can be very helpful, um, both for allergic conditions and fungal or mold type uh, conditions or aspergillus. So um, I often will check those. And then at the same time, I do send an allergy screen in their blood, which is helpful one from a practical standpoint. So if they have end up having like severe persistent asthma and you wanted to use biologic medications, um, they need to have a positive allergen test also uh, to get it covered. And so it's annoying sometimes to have the patient come back to then just do allergy testing. (laughs) So oftentimes I'll do it just because if that's where we're going, we may need that. 
but it also helps give an explanation. So if you know their allergy screen comes back positive that they have an allergy to dogs, you know they may have to um, get rid of their dog. But you know if it comes back positive that they're allergic to elm trees or something, you can't really avoid that. But it helps us explain you know what may be going on. Um, so those are some of the lab tests that I would look for. And yeah, I think that's the basic things that we would start with. I wanted to just ask about some things that I've read about but haven't uh, necessarily done myself. So the the uh, methicoline challenge or the bronchoprovocation challenge, so spirometry you talked about, that, that really is just like your FEV1, your force vital capacity, right? The they may they may or may not do like the bronchodilator response with that I imagine, but right, what's yeah. the like what do you adding a a a challenge to that with like methicoline is that something that you find helpful in in actual practice? And the other one that that was mentioned is this ex, uh, exhaled nitric oxide, which is mm-hmm. a test I've read about but haven't actually seen ordered. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the spirometry will give you the flow volume loop. And so sometimes just looking at the shape of it. So if there's coving there, it might suggest that there's um, airway obstruction. And so they may respond to um, albuterol. And then if they had a normal flow volume loop, though, um, then you might want to do a methicoline challenge test, which is just a series of pulmonary function tests and giving them irritants at different concentrations and comparing it to the normal to see if you can sort of induce asthma in them. So we don't usually do that in people if we suspect that they have severe asthma, because obviously we wouldn't want to put them at risk for it. But if it's somebody who has normal spirometry to start with, then it's helpful to see if there's a change at a concentration that is more sensitive than the normal um, person. Got it. I see. And this may be case specific, but when do you pull the trigger on the methicoline challenge? Do you have to have some baseline clinical suspicion for asthma, or is that just when you, you have no idea what's going on and you're just kind of throwing speed against the wall and seeing what sticks? Uh, I haven't done it very often because I don't find it that helpful because I think oftentimes the patient's going to end up getting probably a trial of an inhaled corticosteroid, which um, is really the gold standard of, you know, do they have some sort of asthma or airway obstruction or eosinophilic asthma or respiratory disease, like they're going to get an inhaled corticosteroid. And if they improve with it, then it makes the diagnosis. So going down the diagnostic route of doing all these different tests, I don't know if it's always helpful because in the end, they often end up getting the same treatment anyway, and we see if it worked or not. Okay. So so we talked about testing. Um, t- to summarize, probably from, primary, from the primary care standpoint, probably a chest x-ray and just plain old spirometry would be a reasonable thing for us to delve into before we send them to you. I probably wouldn't, uh, I guess you could send allergy screen or some of that other stuff from IgE or an IgE, but I just feel like a lot of the times I'd leave that to the specialist that I'm referring to. And as primary care, if we're seeing this person, I think it, it would make sense for us to maybe try to treat some of these most common causes first. Is there a particular order that we're supposed to go in or does it just like just based on your clinical suspicion, try to treat GERD, upper airway cough syndrome and um, and the cough variant asthma? And then if, if that doesn't work, then we send them to you. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about how we might approach that if we're taking the first crack at this person with like idiopathic cough? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, if the history doesn't point you to one of those three um, then I often would go with upper airway cough syndrome or postnasal drip. And so using an intranasal steroid or sometimes just antihistamines um, can be helpful. 
uh, for the patient. And then, you know, if it doesn't work, then you can refer them to me. And if you had already done that, then I might try, you know, giving them the treatment for GERD. And if that doesn't work, you know, and they, I don't feel like that there's cough variant asthma, you know, then we might start thinking about the other rare causes. But if you started one of the three treatments, then I, you know, might do the next, uh, the next highest thing that I suspect. So I think, um, I don't think you can really go wrong, but I would go with uh, treating post-nasal drip to start with. So just real real quick clarification question. When you say antihistamines, do you mean oral or intranasal antihistamines? Uh, You could do one or the other. So depending on if they have, mostly I would give them just oral antihistamines. And so I don't have a lot of evidence though, I think to back that up to say why uh, that versus intranasal antihistamines, just I don't have a lot of experience with them. And I think the old, uh, the old chest guidelines, like the, the ones from 2006 on chronic cough mention, uh, antihistamines, like their first generation antihistamine and, yeah. and a decongestant for upper airway cough syndrome. And I'm just thinking about like my 75 year old, uh, patient and, and just thinking about, I don't really feel safe giving that treatment to them. So I like your approach better. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've actually tried to follow that guideline and give like decongestant and because yeah no because I mean it, it all seems like a bit uh especially because a lot of us have elderly patients it's hard yeah you know to deal with the side effects and I think they also recommended you know like first generation antihistamines and patients are really um, lethargic with that yeah and so I don't know what's better if you're coughing or if you're lethargic <laughs> I'm not you know like right. trading one thing for the other I don't know what's better so <laughs> I was thinking about that, and we'll we'll talk about gabapentin, but I can't help but wonder if you're just making them sleep through their cough, like you're just blasting <laughs> someone with diphenhydramine. Like they're like, I guess I feel better. I don't know. I'm sleeping at night. Like it's- yeah, or like a lot of codeine, you know. <laughs> right. I yeah, I I think the other thing that's really interesting from those guidelines, and and I wanted to know your experience as well, is it seems like it takes a really long time. It's not like you give the person the treatment and three days they feel better. Like even if you guess right. It it seemed like they were suggesting that you give it like weeks to months before the you give up and say that that didn't work. Yeah, so I mean, it's really like a. That's why I set the expectations with the patients ahead of time. Is like we're in this for the long haul, so like let's get to know each other because this is going to be <laughs> <laughs> a period of time. And so I often do like six to eight weeks of each trial. Mm. If you know if they're not successful, and it's like a test of will. You know, if they're really bothered by this cough and they really want to figure it out. <laughs> You know, I'm going to keep going with them, but it's like whoever gives up first, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, there's some that are really tough it out and we keep going all the way to bronchoscopy. But Yeah. Oh, man. It's I mean, just I don't a know grim... if that sounds like the... Uh... Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just a grim thing. You're just like the person is is has this, you know, pain in the ass cough. And you're like, if you could stick with me for the next three to four, three to six months, we'll figure this thing out. Right. Yeah, it's like but a also test it's, will. It's only going to get worse. Like if we don't figure it out, next comes um, esophageal manometry, and we're also going to probably do bronchoscopy. So oh like, this is only be more uncomfortable for you as we go. But yeah, so we really try to just wear them down, you know, so that they like they just accept it, and uh, you know, then I'm successful. One one test I wanted to swing back to for the cough variant asthma and the non asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis. There's mention of the exhaled nitric oxide. And then also for the for the eosinophilic bronchitis, the sputum eosinophils, are those are either of those tests useful in clinical practice or necessary? Because it seems like we're just empirically treating people, so maybe it doesn't matter. 
Uh, I mean, I think that I, um, we have those available um, in my office and I never order them. So I think that that, <laughs> I don't know, you know, if that says that they're helpful or not, or it's just my approach, but I don't, I think that um, the thing is if their eosinophils are positive, they're probably going to get an intra or an inhaled corticosteroid. And if they're not, they're probably going to get an inhaled corticosteroid. So again, it doesn't really change that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's that helpful in this uh, specific case. What's the duration for for the eosinophilic bronchitis? Which I can't say that I've seen. Well, if I've seen it, I wasn't. I didn't know that I've seen it. Is that something that like asthma, where they might be on inhaled steroids for like a like the rest of their like lifelong or at least intermittently throughout the rest of their life? I, I'm just not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what is the trigger too. Like, is there something allergic in their environment that's triggering um, this? And so if they move to a new job and it happened to be something that was at the old job, you know, they may not require that uh, lifelong. But I think always also telling them, you know, we'll always try to step down therapy, which is an important part of asthma therapy. So, you know, if you're on an inhaled corticosteroid, are we able to go down you know, and just using beta agonist intermittently or just use an inhaled corticosteroid, um, you know, maybe a couple months of the year. So it doesn't necessarily mean like a lifelong commitment to, um, you know, to an inhaled corticosteroid. Okay. I like it. So if they get rid of their damn bird and their cough goes away, <laughs> then, yeah. uh, then they might not need inhaled steroids for the rest of their life. Uh, right. right. We're, we're a cat show, Paul. So I guess it makes sense that we don't like birds. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I feel like that follows. It's on brand for us, which is good. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I apologize to all the bird owners out there. I can just see the angry, <laughs> the angry emails my, rolling in. I really have nothing. Literally against... Literally staring at me with evil eyes right now. <laughs> I really have nothing against nothing against birds. All right, so let's let's check in again. This uh, for Mister Wheezy. Let's say that we were a really enterprising primary care physician, and we were actually treating this guy for six months before he got to you. So we treated him for upper airway cough syndrome. We gave him inhaled steroids, intranasal steroids, uh, maybe some antihistamines from time to time. He was, uh, and we also gave him like some oral steroids. We thought maybe he had like an asthma exacerbation or something. We gave him PPI for six to eight weeks and we did the spirometry, chest X-ray. We really haven't found anything. Now we're sending him to you. So what like what's like this next line of testing that I I imagine at this point or, and correct me if I'm wrong one of one of Paul's questions in pre-recording is like when should we refer them to you at this point I could tell you I'm going to refer to you because I don't know what's next <laughs> yeah but I should mean, we have done it sooner <laughs> uh, I mean I think it depends on your comfort of treating it right okay. like if you're able to go through this algorithm yourself and you feel comfortable with it then. I don't think you have to refer, but I think if you did, I don't think anybody would, um, if you referred earlier in this, I don't think anybody would see it as a wrong thing or, you know, laziness or anything like that. I think it would be appropriate uh, to refer them if you've tried, you know, some of the common treatments and you're not sure what's going on, or if there's anything about it that seems not quite right and you're worried about something in particular, I think always referring them, you know, an easy consult is an easy consult. And so if it's something, you know, easy for me to get done with, it's not that bad. It's a lot different than when, you know, when you're in residency and everything is annoying. Like if it's an easy consult, <laughs> I'm happy to do it. 
Yeah. Uh, like in residency, when you call the consultant and they give you like the, the, the long sigh on the phone or they ask you some like really angry question, follow up questions. Yeah. I remember that. I remember those days. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Bird specifically. <laughs> yeah. I get when, so I, I feel like in my own practice, I, I probably, it sounds like I jump a little bit to cross-sectional imaging probably too early. Um, and rather than sort of exhausting other, other workup first, when, when do you reach for the CT scan for patients? Um, I mean, I think if you had referred them to me, um, Matt, like when you were talking about going through everything that you've already done and they have a chest X-ray that's, if the chest X-ray has something abnormal on it, they're probably going to get a CT scan. But if they had a normal looking chest X-ray and all of these problems, I still would probably do a CT scan, you know, after talking with them. And because we would be looking for maybe interstitial lung disease that we're not picking up on the... Um, chest x-ray itself and if they hadn't had full pulmonary function tests yet. So I would probably do both of those things. So a CT scan, doing inspiratory and expiratory images are helpful because it can show air trapping, which you know helps us know that there's small airways disease. So oftentimes if I order, a, when I order a CT scan, I often order it with both of those inspiratory and expiratory views. And then a full pulmonary function test, so including the lung volumes and the DLCO. So that was, that's probably where I would go next, you know, after he had had all of these things done. Who's getting bronchoscopy? The ones that stick with you for six months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, duh. After we've been doing this dance for, you know, like six to eight months and you're still coughing, we're probably moving towards the Bronx suite. Uh, so um, I think if they had a normal chest X, a normal CT scan and they had normal PFTs, I think the only next step would be probably bronchoscopy just to see if there's an endobronchial lesion or something like that that could be causing this. But if you haven't found anything yet on that whole workup, then the bronchoscopy might be the next step, but it's not the highest yield uh, in chronic cough. So one of the things in terms of doing it is that, yes, you could see if there's an endobronchial lesion uh, that you're not picking up on the CT scans, but also it kind of shows your commitment to trying to figure out the patient's cause of cough and that you're going through a, a whole procedure and bronchoscopy and everything just to figure it out. And if that doesn't do it, then, you know, we may be stuck with uh, idiopathic cough syndrome. If I were NOM. you doing the bronchoscopy, I would just have fingers crossed that I find like a sprouted pea plant in there or something like having, <laughs> having people found like it, they, they thought someone had lung cancer, they've got like a cough and things, and then they find like something wedged in a bronchus down there. I imagine that's a super rare thing, but it's, I would always be fingers crossed that that's what I was going to find. Be so satisfied. These are like pulmonary urban legends. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So what, uh, let's say you do the bronc and still nothing. Um, I'm sorry, uh, I got got to read this out loud. Cyrus, our our fearless producer, Cyrus Askin is is saying that he found a tooth in a right lower lobe one time. Was that a patient with with chronic cough, Cyrus, or was that or was that just somebody that you knew had aspirated a tooth? So they they may have been a polytrauma, they may have been intubated, <laughs> and but the fact remains that we fished a tooth out of their uh, right lower lobe, which is pretty sweet. That's super cool. Congratulations! I uh, high five. I had nothing to do with cough. All right, next. <laughs> Okay, so it would be more exciting had you just found it incidentally, like you're working up cough and there just happened to be a tooth down there. That's still pretty. <laughs> still cool, still cool. All right, so Brad, what, like, what are what are we thinking of if the bronch is normal? We still don't have a diagnosis, and we've we've done everything—the high res CT, all the other stuff we already talked about—all and and we bronch them. 
what is available to this person that has this idiopathic chronic cough? Yeah, I mean, so one of the questions could be like, is this a laryngeal sensory neuropathy? So is there something about their um, laryngeal nerves that are hypersensitive or reacting in some way that's causing them to cough? And so this is where something like gabapentin might be helpful. So a trial of gabapentin um, at a low dose might help them. uh, And that would help with the diagnosis. And I think that there's ways to diagnose that um, through ear, nose and throat evaluation like video stroboscopy and other things, but I've had a few patients that have um, really had benefit with gabapentin. So it makes it seem as if there's some sort of like neurologic hypersensitivity that's calmed down by the medications because there's really no physical other explanation. What sort of doses do you do you recall? Uh, I believe it was low dose from what I was using. I think it was like 100 milligrams of gabapentin TID. I think, is that correct? That's, yeah, that's that's the lowest, pretty much the lowest dose yeah. you can give. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think they recommend starting with the lowest, the, the daily dose starting at 300 milligrams daily and then titrating upwards, but they didn't, I don't think they're very specific as to what you titrate to. Yeah, but until, I mean, it's very until rare. passes out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, eventually gabapentin will stop a, a lot of coughing, you know, depending <laughs> on how much you give it. But uh it's very rare, you know, that we would get to this point, I think, um, without finding any cause for this person's cough. Right. Um, and, and then the last part of it would be like, is this a psychogenic cough? And, you know, that's a, that's a diagnosis of exclusion, of course, um, because like, why is the person coughing so much that they're coming to your office when it's something that, you know, is maybe under conscious control? But, um, but that's definitely a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And I could be misremembering, but I feel like I, I read somewhere in the guidelines when we're in the territory of unexplained chronic cough about fairly early referral to a licensed speech pathologist too. Is that, am I making that up? And is that something that is, is commonly done? Because that's not something that would have ever occurred to me, I don't think, before researching for this. Um, I, yeah, I mean, th- so there's like um, paradoxical vocal fold motion, um, which can be a mimicker of asthma. And it's something that they diagnose, again, um, through ear, nose, and throat evaluation and laryngoscopy. And the treatment is really a psychological treatment through speech and like the speech and language pathologists. Like they teach the patients how to suppress that. It's either a cough or like a wheezing that they feel um, that's related mostly to the vocal fold motion that's paradoxical. So that can help them in that standpoint, but it doesn't necessarily always come as cough. That's more of people who have asthma that's just refractory uh, to all the medications. And then you start wondering, like, is there something that I'm missing that's not related to their lungs? And one of the, there was a a New England journal review on chronic cough that Cyrus had put up and uh, it was talking about, um, yeah, the speech pathology, gabapentin or pregabalin, and then low dose morphine like low dose, slow, slow release morphine, five milligrams twice a day, which just seems like, as Paul said, you're just like, <laughs> the person doesn't care about the cough at that point because they're, <laughs> they're, they're on morphine. So is that something you've ever used or that you would recommend to the audience? Uh, I mean, not for chronic cough. I haven't used that. Um, and, you know, for other conditions, I think it can be helpful, obviously like end stage COPD or, um, you know, pulmonary fibrosis or other um, conditions. But if we have no explanation uh, for their cough, I feel like using opiates, like at what point would we stop then? Uh, You know, like if they're coughing all the time and then like, I I guess it just gets into a territory that might be uncomfortable. Um, So I think sometimes people will give codeine 
you know, for a period of time. And if the patient gets better, especially after their post-viral cough, you know, has gone away, you know, like a one-time prescription of codeine just to sort of get through the coughing period. But usually I, I don't think anybody would want to keep somebody on opiates for a long period of time without any discernible explanation for it. Yeah, that reminds me, and I think they get used all the time. Uh, I, I imagine you, you you have some sort of a thought on this. Guaifenesin, dextromethorphan, you mentioned codeine, there's promethazine in codeine, there's benzonitate, which is a respiratory tract anesthetic. There's all these cough and cold formulations out there, and I see patients on them that have chronic cough. Uh, I doubt people have gone through this big thorough workup that we've talked about, but do you find that there's a role for those medications, those just sort of symptomatic cough meds that we all probably prescribe at one point in time? Uh, no, I know. I mean, you would think like as a pulmonologist, like I have a favorite mucolytic or something like that, <laughs> but I really, uh, I really don't. And what I usually tell the patients is if you go to any Walgreens or CVS or whatever, you know, half of the store is cough remedies. So that should tell you that none of them are effective because if there was one that was effective, it would be like a small shelf of just two to pick from. But instead, there's like a giant market. So I think it's because none of them are effective and people just cycle through all of them. So yeah. sometimes patients will say, oh, you know, um, guaifenesin helps me or dextromethorphan has helped me in the past. And sure, like if they want to try that again, I think it's fine. But I typically don't prescribe them because I don't feel like any of them were that effective. Um, it's got to be a multi-billion dollar industry. And pediatrics, there's actually some statements I've seen saying like they, you should not use those in, pe in pediatric patients, like specifically because in kids, I think it's a little bit higher stakes. But And you could probably argue the same about the older adults that we talked about earlier in the show. And uh, I've said this on past episodes. I, I don't think anybody has an incentive to really study that, like certainly not the people that are making those agents because people are just buying them, it says cough or, cough or cold treatment on there. And so people buy them out of desperation. So I don't know that we can fix that on this one, guys. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. For... No, I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's some sort of like economic, you know, study behind it, but it's just, uh, I don't, re I don't usually recommend any of them because I don't feel like any of them are particularly helpful. And it seems all like a money-making scheme of it. It would be a breath of fresh air if you could clear that up. <laughs> well done, Stuart. <laughs> I think he's yeah. been writing that for the past 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, uh, this yeah. has been awesome. Thank you. For the listeners at home, Stuart's doing a victory lab, just so you can't see it. But it is <laughs> Brad, thank good. you for talking us through these very murky waters and giving us uh, your expertise. Can you can you recap some of the bigger points that you'd like the audience to take away from this? Yeah. I mean, I think that just knowing that um, chronic cough, one is that it can be disabling to a lot of people. And so you know, even though we're joking about it, you know, trying to take it seriously, um, because some people it's very distressing, but using um, a stepwise approach um, and knowing the top three causes of chronic cough and sort of trying to hone in on one of those three things and treating it. And if there's no treatment for that, you know, either um, upper airway cough syndrome or cough variant asthma or acid reflux, um, then referring to your friendly local pulmonologist is reasonable uh, to try to figure out you know, what could be causing this and just that it's a long haul. Awesome. Brad, is there anything that you wanted to plug? We usually give our guests, you don't have to plug anything if you don't want to, but is there anything that you'd like to plug, uh, for the audience? Um, I mean, 
other than I would like to say that, uh, you know, one of the things when I'm rounding with the residents, uh, because I feel out of touch, old person to them now, <laughs> is telling them uh, that I was once your uh, and Paul's senior resident. Um, I feel like I'm connecting to the, the youth of today. So yeah. <laughs> So just letting you guys know that, you know, there's a lot of like fangirling that goes on when they know uh, what a formative role I played in your uh, education, I'm sure. You did. Thank you. Thank you for being. Credit all to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Brad. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Cyrus Askin, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram and Chris the Tree Man Jew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. Yes, uh, big thanks to Cyrus for writing and producing this episode, and I believe to Dr. Kate Grant for doing the artwork for this episode. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I am, and hopefully always will be, Dr. Cyrus Askin. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you're doubtless hearing behind you, and we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. And a gentle reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.dcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. <laughs>